Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series, sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Muradian, and it is my honor and pleasure to welcome my friend Peter Van Praeg, the President and CEO of HFX, an organization that promotes global democracies. Uh, it is the organization that also hosts uh, what I view as the world's finest international security conference in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the Halifax International Security Forum that annually convenes uh, some of the most thoughtful government, diplomatic, military, civil society, uh, industry, as well as media leaders uh, to discuss the importance of placing democracy, freedom, and human rights at the center of international security. Peter, thanks so very much for joining us. And we've been overdue in talking and uh, really, really happy uh, that you're able to join us today. Vago, I'm delighted to be here. And it's great to, uh, to join your listeners. And um, it's, always, it's always exciting to talk with you. Uh, in, indeed, uh, a pleasure. This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall uh, Foundation. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Uh, General Atomics, uh, as I said, uh, sponsors our strategy coverage overall, ultra intelligence uh, and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air and naval coverage. Um, Peter, thanks very much uh, again uh, for joining us. You know, e each year uh, you give an opening address at the forum that really frames the big issues facing uh, democracies. Uh, and you really nailed it in November when you said that it took Russia's attack on Ukraine and Ukraine's gallant fight for its survival to remi remind us all of, of how precious freedom and, and democracy uh, are. It's a fight that we need uh, to engage in every day. Uh, and and the, the need to do it in uh, as moral a way as possible, right? The patron uh, saint of the event is uh, the, the late great Senator John uh, McCain, uh, who would passionately talk about the importance of uh, democracy uh, and human rights. Why is, uh, you know, but, but some make the case for realpolitik, that it's important to cozy up uh, to dictators and to tyrants. Uh, it's in our financial interest to do so, or political interest uh, or even uh, seen as security interests. From your perspective, why is placing democracy, democratic values, and human rights at the heart of strategy actually core to national security? First, I just want to congratulate you on, on building this out. It's really impressive what you've done, and uh, it's always a delight to be here. I, I, I don't know if it's because I, I just read it recently, but maybe I'll begin with an Albert Einstein quote. Um, he said, there are two, two things in the world, uh, there are two things that are infinite, uh, one is the universe, the universe, and the second is human stupidity. And uh, I'm not sure about the former. Um, and so I, I do want to begin. I don't, I, I have a lot of friends who call themselves real politic and they want to subscribe to this view, but it's just, um, it, it's been proven over and over again uh, that, um, you know, our, our security is tied up with who we are and who we are uh, in the United States, in Canada, what we call the West uh, in Europe is um, over centuries in so something that we should be very proud of, our societies that are built up uh, according to rule of law, uh, human rights, free, free and fair elections. Uh, and um, that is uh, something that our ancestors have fought for and our children will fight for 
it is the only way uh, that um, human progress is achieved. And the alternative of cozying up with dictators um, was made clear, if it had to be made clear, uh, last February uh, in 2022, when the Russians invaded um, Ukraine. Uh, so we don't need any more evidence. We didn't need evidence last year. Um, what we need to move toward is a world where democracies, and yes, the United States is the strongest, the wealthiest, and the most powerful democracy, and so it has a, a very important and unique role to play, um, um, where the democracies cooperate more closely on all sorts of issues, uh, economic issues, um, political issues, and security issues. That does not mean, Vago, that the democracies are going to agree on everything, nor should they agree on everything. Just like political parties in this country are not supposed to agree on everything. That is the point. Um, there should be uh, what is understood to be a frame of rules, um, and those rules should be followed, and uh, agreements um, then can be, can be enhanced. And I will just will tell you that I am optimistic um, that once again, if, if we did forget them, that uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and more pertinently, Ukraine's defiant defense of its sovereignty and its democracy have reminded us uh, what is at stake. And everything is at stake, Vago. Everything is at stake. Agreed. And I'm, I want to get into sort of the fundamental health of democracies uh, in a moment. Um, but what's, uh, Peter, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we, we come up against expediency, right? The administration has been trying to lead um, a global uh, charge uh, on getting tougher uh, on China, for example, um, or, and to get tougher on, on Russia. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're still trading with a country um, that oppresses its people, two nations that oppress uh, their people, despite sanctions, we're still doing business mm -hmm. uh, with the Russians, uh, ultimately. Mm -hmm. What's, you know, uh, the president of the United States went to Saudi Arabia, uh, a president who had criticized the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, mm -hmm. um, you know, fist bumped uh, the man who had authorized the killing and eventually got nothing for it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's a clash of realpolitik against. Mm -hmm. How is it that we do this in the real world Mm -hmm. and, and manage to bring the world along with us. I'm going to get to some specific questions on China and Russia in a minute, but what's the mental uh, and organizational architecture we need in order to be able to get to this principle-based foreign policy? I mean, I'm going to give a shout out to Canada for a couple of years there when the United States was not leading on the world stage. Canada deserves a lot of credit for having filled that void uh, mm -hmm. as a small but very important nation. How do we do this architecturally to get us there? Because again, these powerful strains exist. Well, there are a lot of jobs at stake, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All of that is true. And, and, it's, and I think it's important to acknowledge uh, what you've just said. Um, you know, um, nation states uh, do not have to act as human rights organizations. Human rights organizations have a very important uh, role to play and they play it. Security organizations have a very important role to play and they play it. And nation states are neither security organizations nor human rights organizations. And so I really, the answer to your question is, is priority uh, and understanding. And if we can go back in time a little bit and understand how we won uh, World War II, um, World War II was not fought to dismantle Soviet communism. World War II was fought to dismantle uh, Japanese imperialism and 
German Nazism, and it was successful in that regard. The Cold War was fought, arguably, I would say, to dismantle Soviet communism, and the United States had, uh, had partners and allies around the world, including many democracies, and including some partners that we had to hold our nose a little bit. And so it is, it is, there is a sense of understanding what the priorities are. At this moment in time, Vago, the priority is winning in Ukraine. And I will tell you that in my uh, estimation, I think there's been a sea change uh, at the White House um, and I think in European capitals. I think we saw it uh, over the debate on leopard tanks going in a couple of weeks ago. I think the decision has been made not only at the White House, but at the State Department. I think it was made earlier at the Pentagon uh, to win in Ukraine. Uh, and that's very important, not just to hold the line, uh, but to win. And I think that is something, I, I think political leaders, um, some political leaders have said it uh, from the Baltic states and others. Um, I think larger countries haven't quite said it out loud yet, um, echoing President Zelensky in Ukraine. Um, but I think that has been, that's the decision that has been made. Um, why has it been made? It's been made late, um, but I think it's important that it's been made. And it's been made because there is a realization that everything depends and everything is linked to uh, what happens in Central Europe at this time. Um, let me um, pull on that uh, a little bit, right? Um, the administration uh, has done an unprecedented job and Ukraine would not be where it is now if it wasn't for the leadership uh, coming from uh, the United States and from the White House and indeed from the president, right? As, as we both know, there were a lot of people in the Pentagon who just did not want uh, to be doing this. They would much rather be spending this money, uh, for example, on China. Um, uh, and, and now understand the case that if you don't beat Russia in Ukraine, uh, not to sound domino theorist, uh, but you're never going to deter China from moving on uh, Taiwan, uh, mm -hmm. potentially. Right. Um, fr from your standpoint, though, how does this end uh, with uh, the Russians? Because the administration, for all its strength, is still showing some trepidation. It doesn't want to send combat aircraft. If it had approved armored vehicles and tanks sooner, Ukrainians would be better prepared for the coming massive onslaught that they're going to face. They're going to face it. Uh, how, how, you know, how does this end as, as you put your, you know, like, what are the next stages we have to go through um, to get to prevailing and what is prevailing ultimately? This, well, this ends with too many, well, too many Ukrainians have already died. Um, and it ends, sadly, tragically, with um, too many more Ukrainians who are going to die. Um, and that is, that is the tragedy of all of this. But it is going to end, Vago, and it's very important for your listeners to understand this. It is going to end with the Russians out of Ukraine. That means out of Donbass, and it means out of Crimea. That is how this is going to end. And that is when negotiations will start. And that is when uh, China will understand that what we call collectively as the West. I'm going to try to change that on this conversation and, and, and refer to, instead of the West, just call the democracies, meaning the democracies of the world, because I think that's a that's um, something that we have to talk about. But um, and that will um, with Russia out of Ukraine. Um, and there's a conversation there. To be, what does that mean internally for Russia? Um, and we can talk about that. Um, but that is when China will realize that the democracies are serious and China will then begin um, uh, figuring out what its next moves are in the international uh, arena.
But, uh, we should uh, point out that Vladimir Karamurzo also was uh, a member of the Halifax uh, family, and unfortunately, um, he is in uh, a Russian jail and showing admirable uh, bravery that having been poisoned twice, returned, and knowing he faced arrest, uh, still returned uh, to, to Moscow. Uh, you know, Alexei Navalny um, has been moved to an even tougher prison. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I did, we, we had thought that Russia had run out of tougher prisons, but apparently they've got a few in reserve, uh, which is not mm -hmm. funny. Mm -hmm. um, how, you know, Yanis Kaisuchins, uh, who was the Latvian uh, national security advisor, has warned that actually, it, you know, whatever comes after Putin could actually be worse. So we have mm -hmm. to plan... You know, it's it's not like all of a sudden it's going to be the Navalny Karamurza ticket leading uh, Russia, right? What are the implications for Russia? Um, and you know, Russians, uh, as as you know well, and I know from family history, have a tendency of having had bad leaders for you know like about a thousand years. Mm -hmm. So they're very good at just keep your head down, stick mm -hmm. to your knitting. The the walls have ears, mm -hmm. right? How realistic is it that this is going to drive change? And if so, what kind of change does this drive mm -hmm. in Russia? Um, I don't know. And That's I, an I mean, honest I, answer. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can expand on that. I can tell you. Please what do. I, I can tell you what I would hope to see, but I think your listeners will know what somebody like me would hope to see in Russia. Um, but as you just pointed out, um, it's hard to imagine. Now, um, you know, General Patton wanted to invade Russia in 1944, 45. Uh, he wanted just to go all the way across. And um, the decision was made not to do that. Um, other people the, toward the end of the Cold War thought that there should be a larger presence uh, in, in actual Russia uh, in the 1990s. Um, as you, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, and I sat in on on Russia, NATO, NATO, Russia council meetings at NATO, um, uh, yeah, all the way at the leader level, um, there was uh, an effort uh, to engage Russia, to bring Russia into, into the family. Um, Russia is a universe upon itself, in a, and it is very difficult to understand Russia if you are Russian. It is uh, even more difficult to understand Russia if you are a foreigner not living in Russia. Um, and so it, it is really impossible to understand what's going to happen inside Russia, but something will happen. There will be some type of political earthquake, A. B, there are many, many good Russians. That is something that, that um, you know, um, President Zelensky can't say that right now because he's building a war against Putin's Russia, um, but he knows it um, and uh, Ukrainian people know it and uh, history knows it. Of course, there are good Russians, just like there are good everything. Um, but as you say, Russia has no history of tolerance. It has uh, a dark history of, of abuse uh, without human rights. And um, um, that doesn't mean that there aren't many, many Russians who do want to enter the modern world. Um, but that has to be something that is, that is internal to Russia. Russia is not um, Latvia. Um, Russia is not Poland. Uh, um, Russia is Russia, and there's nothing like it. And um, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, I do think that um, defeat, and it will be defeat um, in in Ukraine. Um, there's two, two things that can drive positive change in Russia, and they have both have to happen, and they are happening now. Number one is um, 
instead of saying it's Russia's defeat, I'll frame it the other way, Ukraine's victory uh, in this war, number one, and number two, Ukraine's political success following the war, both rebuilding investment into Ukraine, but also what we're watching now in, in uh, President Zelensky's Ukraine, which is a crackdown on corruption. And um, if Russians see that Ukraine is succeeding, uh, that, will, that, will, that will be, and it has been President Putin's largest fear for the last 20 years, um, that will be a signal to the Russian people that, that maybe um, the Russian future uh, could belong uh, to modern society. How do we need to think about the red lines uh, that Putin has been Right. I mean, we're always afraid of crossing a red line. We don't want to give combat aircraft because it gives the Ukrainians uh, capability to strike deep into Russia, Uh, or we don't want to give them ATACMs. Um, I would note the Ukrainians have shown remarkable forbearance, not using any of our weapon systems to attack Russia. They figured out how to do that on their own. Um, How do we need to think about red lines and self-deterrence, right? What are some of the lessons you think, Peter, that that, that need to be learned in this process? I think a, an American uh, can't kill a Russian and a Russian can't kill an American. And I think that's about it. Um, I, don't, I don't think that, uh, and these are rules that are written a long time ago. Uh, um, I mean, if we look at this uh, strategically, um, even tactically, um, everything changes if, if, uh, if the Russian side ele- elevates this to a level uh, of using some type of tactical nuke on the battlefield. And um, I mean, that will, that, that will be a disaster because many Ukrainians are going to die, uh, but it'll be a much bigger disaster for Russia because now you will have Russian, now you will have American, American tanks in the Donbass uh, with Americans driving them. <laughs> um, and that, you know, and so that's, that is something that, um, I don't believe is going to happen. I believe that we have to be wary. I think I think it's fine to talk about these conversations, um, and I think we've had to move. Uh, I'd like to move at, at a little bit of a faster pace than we've moved, but all of this has had to have been incremental. Um, and um, you know, I got to give the biggest kudos to President Zelensky and his team, but I think President Biden and and uh, together with the uh, you know with the Congress, including many Republicans in Congress. Um, um, have really, um, you know, who have supported uh, increased funding and su- material support to Ukraine really um, deserve a lot of kudos. And the American people understand that. The American people, I don't need to tell you, Vago, um, like to win. And, um, and I think that uh, as long as the Ukrainians keep putting up a fight, the American people will be behind them. Uh, I, I think uh, I would uh, commend you on all of that uh, and agree with you. And again, uh, the entire NATO alliance coming together with uh, some notable exceptions, and we'll talk about them uh, in, a, in, a, in a moment. Is there a way for the United States, um, this question just jumped into my mind, mm-hmm. is there a way the United States, right? I mean, the, the, the Russians are paranoid. Um, uh, and it and it also serves their political interest to be paranoid, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Russia's whole uh, and Putin's whole and every authoritarian uh, playbook has like the the fear of the external uh, mm-hmm. threat. Uh, mm-hmm. Are there things the international community can do beyond um, the application, you know, beyond giving military assistance, beyond sanctioning Russia, to actually help those in Russia that want to change the system without they themselves becoming part of the problem? Yeah, and I, I think I think I mean I don't want to say too much, um, but the answer to that question is yeah. I mean, 
you say that Russia is paranoid. Russia may or may not be paranoid. Um, again, it's very difficult to know what the Russian, what the Kremlin actually thinks. Whether it's paranoid or not paranoid, Russia needs a bad guy. Um, and whether it actually believes the United States is going to attack Russia at any moment or doesn't believe it, I think is, is secondary. Um, the, to, I mean, if, if you look at a map, I mean, Canada and the United States are huge in and of themselves. They're both very difficult countries to govern. Russia is impossible to govern. I mean, it's, it's enormous and empty. And so just to govern Russia, the Kremlin throughout its history, thousands of years, needs a bad guy. It's always needed a bad guy. And it needs a bad guy that um, it's not actually going to fight. It needs, right. it, so it can't be too close. Uh, and it has to be a significant big bad guy. Uh, and so it's the United States. So does does Russia really believe the United States is its enemy? It's it's uh, existential and, and is an existential threat. I don't know, but it needs that bad guy to keep the Russian cohesiveness together. Right. Russian part of Russian identity is feeling good that you're a superpower and that you're one of the strongest countries in the world. And and um, and and um, so part of part of that identity means um, making trouble. Uh, for countries that are that are bigger and stronger, Russia's economy now is is the size of Italy's, and uh, right now it's can't get materials to build any more weapons. Um, you know, the sanctions are working, um, and so you know, I think that you know, people won't remember this, but when when Joe Biden was the vice president of the United States, I think it was two, as early as two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. He was asked uh, on a plane uh, flying back from Ukraine, actually, um, how the United States had to handle Russia. And he said, well, Russia is a declining power. And as a declining power, it has to be managed very carefully. And that is true. Russia is a declining power. It's declined, by the way. It doesn't have that much further to decline. It's a decline. Um, but we have not managed it carefully enough. And um, mistakes were made during the Obama administration um, that, um, you know, that we are, that we are, and the Ukrainian people are, are paying for at this juncture. Um, so with that, there are smart, educated, modern Russians, some still in Russia, many in Europe, some in North America, uh, who, whose messages are getting to the Russian people. Um, and anything we can do to help support that, I think is helpful. At the same time, Russians, as I just said, are suspicious of foreigners. They're always going to be. And so any, uh, any Russian who has a stamp of being supported by a Westerner or a, a, a foreigner uh, can't do uh, too much uh, uh, politically in, in Russia. So people have to be careful of that. I think that's one of the reasons why our friend Vladimir Karamurza went back to Russia um, and uh, because in, in his mind, and I, you know, who am I to question uh, question Vladimir Karamurza? Um, he can do more even from a prison cell uh, than he could from London or or uh, Berlin. Um, of course, there are there are Russians who are in London and Berlin who are making a lot of noise. But Vladimir Karamurza is still writing. Uh, uh, his wife, who's uh, also a hero of Genya, uh, is is moving his message around, um, and I think that's very important for Russians inside Russia to hear from Russians um, that there could be a better future. Uh, from your mouth to God's ears, as they, uh, as they say, Peter, um, I want to move to China. Um, mm -hmm. the, uh, why, why, would, why would you want to move to China? 
ladies and gentlemen he's here all week he's here all week try the chicken there are so many chinese leaving china you want in yeah i want in but i I gotta tell you the real estate market is tanked you could probably get a decent place you could you could get you could get a nice place um uh poor choice of words on my part thanks for pointing that out i do not want to go to china let me just uh, stress that i don't mean that in a bad way yeah um so um but I want to move the conversation. I, I should also t- uh, is, is say that, you know, for uh, the Russians to complain about, you know, the number of Russians that are being killed at the hands of American weapons, I would just remind them of the Korean War and the Vietnam War, where an enormous number of Americans actually died at the hands of Russian we- uh, weaponry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, these proxy states, you know, don't start a war if you don't want your butt kicked, uh, mm-hmm. ultimately, is, is my maxim. Um, and by the way, know. that maxim, don't start a war if you don't want your butt kicked. Applies to all countries. It just, applies to all companies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. It should go without saying. Yeah, uh, yeah, even right. even though in your introduction you sort of uh, uh, hinted at that when we were talking about Afghanistan. Yeah. Anyway, um, the, I want to talk about China. Um, mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, the forum did, uh, and I commend everybody to check it out. Just an awesome primer on what a uh, and and thanks for making that correction. It's not a Western strategy; it's a democratic strategy mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. how to deal with China. Um, at the time, uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy and the aggressiveness was going up. She was showing that he was the real strong man. Now he's dealing with a whole bunch of series of challenges. Uh, and so now there's the charm offensive. And now we had the balloon uh, incident, which is going to be a setback. Um, um, you know, there are those in Europe who are looking for a softer tone because their economies depend on it. Um, you know, Uyghurs and domestic oppression be damned, right? I mean, it annoys me when we say never again, because we don't really mean it, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think it sounds rhetorically good. Um, what's, what's the right approach, Peter, to China and getting the balance right, um, defending what's important, holding, you know, we've had a tendency of sometimes not illustrating um, some of, and, and calling some of this out. We're increasingly doing it. How, what, what does an architectural approach to this look like? The administration is trying very hard in bringing people together in order to deal with it. We now have you know, French, Germans, and you know, Europeans agreeing. Mm-hmm. People in Asia understand what they're dealing with. But at the same time, you know, Antony Albanese is looking to restore trade ties, and, and so are the Germans. Olaf Scholz mm-hmm. visited mm-hmm. Beijing recently. Mm-hmm. What's the way to do this in a lasting way um, to achieve, what is it we're trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. Counter them, mm-hmm. beat them. The mm-hmm. Trump administration was we have to break China. I don't think that works. We haven't broken North Korea or Iran yet, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. What what does uh, it look like? Um, okay, I'm going to go to China in a second, but you did you did use the phrase "never again," and I do think that is something that that should be a guiding path um, for all democracies. Um, um, we did a panel at Halifax, a dinner, uh, a small session, off-the-record session, um, called uh, NATO, N-A-T-O, and then um, we had it as what is NATO? Uh, Never again treaty organization, and I do think it's the responsibility of nation states of security organizations such as NATO to ensure that what happened uh, ne- never again, of course, refers to the, the Holocaust. Um, and now we see what happened in Bucha and we see what the Russians have done. Um, and I do think that is a scar for all of us um, in the democracies. And we need to understand that is happening in Western China. 
So uh, with the Uyghur, the Uyghur community, um, I think that we uh, understand that there are uh, camps being set up where Uyghur males um, are being uh, sent uh, and they are being uh, essentially brainwashed. Um, there's talk that there's a mass sterilization program. Uh, and this is, um, you know, insane in the membrane uh, for the beginning of the 21st century. So we need to understand, number one, uh, to answer your question now with regard to China, so to understand uh, what we're talking about um, and that China is not nice um, and, and it's not, uh, you know, I think that that understanding now um, is being under, you know, it's, it's coming to the fore. I think the Americans maybe um, understand this stuff, even though it's further away, uh, better than others, sooner than others. Um, we understand, it's certainly understood in Australia. It's now being, uh, it's been understood for a long time, but it's been acted upon uh, in Japan uh, and of course uh, in Taiwan. Um, so I think in East Asia, there's an understanding um, of what China, of what the threat from China is. Um, just as the threat from Russia is not uh, well enough understood in either South Asia or East Asia, the threat from China is not well enough understood uh, in Europe. And as you mentioned, Germany. Um, so really the two countries that I look at in this regard is Germany on China and India um, on Russia. And that really is, uh, these are the, um, <clears throat> the bellwethers for me. So, you know, the challenge for an organization like mine is try to educate the Germans. Germany is the biggest uh, um, wealthiest country in Europe. Um, India is about to become, if it has, I think it maybe just did become uh, the largest country in the world. Um, and if we can, if we can educate the Indians uh, and see a little bit of a shift away from Russia, and if we can move the Germans a little bit from China, I think that's what we want to do in terms of gaining understanding. Now, what is, what, what is our overall, the democracy's overall goal in uh, China or Russia? It's to create responsible actors. It's to create countries that, uh, that can treat its own citizens well. And I say that first because that, come, that does come first because only, only a country that treats its own citizens with equity uh, is going to be a, a good actor on the international stage. So we want, um, th that is the goal. It's not to have a war with China. It's not to defeat China. It is to deter China and move China in a direction so that um, it understands that it is not worth its while to challenge us uh, illegally or uh, economically, militarily. And once it does make that realization, and it will make that realization, uh, then it can, I don't want to use the, retreat, uh, use the word retreat, um, but that's what we'd like to see. We'd like to see China um, behave improperly. And, but what are some of the policies, Peter, um, that uh, get us there, right? Um, people are reluctant to use trade as a weapon. Uh, as uh, you noted, right, there's a concern that an unstable China is more dangerous than a stable China, however bad, uh, right? That each one of these autocracies become a lot more uh, dangerous. Um, ultimately, what are the policies that succeed because in every single thing that we're doing, whether it's CHIPS Act or uh, infrastructure improvement or what have you, 
has a potentially negative consequence as well, right? I mean, our Taiwanese allies, for example, are very worried uh, about chips and we depend less on Taiwan. Maybe we'd be less interested in defending Taiwan in a war. How do we calibrate this properly? Um, or, or is it a cold turkey situation where we, we do acknowledge we are in a cold war? You have the democracies on one side, you have the autocrats on the other side, and then a whole bunch of countries that move as they did during the Cold War among these and these spheres or try to try to remain suspended between them. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can use the word Cold War simply because, um, as I said at the top of this, um, um, there's a level of human stupidity uh, that does not allow people to, to tell the truth. Um, of course, it's a Cold War. Uh, and of course, that's what we want it to be, because a hot war means that a lot of people die. So let's try to avoid that. And uh, um, if we call it a Cold War, that's fine by me. But it's, it, it's you know, a lot of businesses in the United States and other, you know, are scared of a term like that. But that's essentially what we need to do. Uh, and we need to, and it's happening. So number one, as I said at the top of this, is um, demonstrate our resolve in Central Europe. Uh, and that is that is going to happen. And that will then send mes- messages around. Number two is, and this is also happening, is enhance uh, democracy's military presence in East Asia. That's happening. Um, it's welcome. Uh, and uh, number three, and attached to that, are um, Southeast Asian and East Asian nations, including Japan, which has a massive economy, let's not forget, and technological prowess, uh, are rearming uh, and... Um, and, and moving uh, significant weaponry to uh, Taiwan. All of that is, is just makes it far more difficult uh, for China to uh, make bad decisions. I mean, they can still make bad decisions, but they need to do a, a different uh, cost-benefit analysis. Um, then there's the economics that you're suggesting, and that is happening too, um, whether it was the, because of the um, pandemic shortages or, or because uh you know the lockdowns in china there's been a need now to move away uh even even apple uh is, that is completely tied to china is trying to uh, find alternative uh manufacturing uh, capability in other neighboring countries um and that is happening um and so you know it's important to understand that china you know it's changed a little bit but i like to think of china as a hardware um country, whereas Japan is a software company, country. What does that mean? Well, uh, to get where China got technologically, it stole everything. It stole all these plans. And um, while it has now developed a cadre of engineers and thinkers who can design things, um, it is not Japan. It's not the United States. It's not a Europe. Uh, it's not Germany. Um, and so um, provided that we have shut that down, uh, or are shutting it down, provided that we are keeping our technologies home, our capacity at home. Um, you know, China is going to find itself uh, as well as a as a shrinking population. China is going to have to understand really uh, where it is in the world, um, what its capacities are. the The danger is, as it was, as it is with Russia, as China figures out that its growth is limited and it's going to get to a peak and begin. Uh, uh, shrinking. You know, we did a panel several years back, which was called Peking China, P-E-A-K-I-N-G. And, um, and, um, and China's peaking. 
And the, the, the question now, uh, Vago, is uh, how much damage is it going to choose to do in the region or in the world uh, as it peaks? And a lot of this, uh, like in Russia, hinges on one human being, and that is uh, the guy who's just made himself king, uh, Xi Jinping. By the way, if uh, folks have not noticed already, uh, an enormous amount of uh, Peter and his team's bandwidth goes uh, go into very clever uh, word puns that do actually frame uh, some of the challenges that we're facing. So kudos to you and the team for doing that. There's so much more we have to talk about, and we've got a couple of minutes to do it. And I want to go to democracies, uh, which is funny. I wanted to start there. Uh, and we started with the realpolitik. Um, Peter, uh, the last decade has not been a good one uh, for uh, democracies. It's been very good for autocrats, at least mm -hmm. in the time being, you know, whether you're looking at democracy in the United States, Hungary, Poland, Turkey, uh, others around the world, we're seeing an incredible collapse in Peru. Uh, we've seen right-wing forces on the move uh, and parties on the move in Germany, Sweden, Italy, France, Netherlands, even in Spain uh, that had moved away from a right-wing tradition in the wake of Franco has seen the right uh, come back. Um, positive that uh, Peter uh, Pavel, uh, former NATO military chairman, uh, won uh, the Czech presidency. That's encouraging. Um, what's the outlook for global democracies from your standpoint? Um, two points I'll make. Number one, democracy is better. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> that is a breaking news item. <laughs> well, sometimes we're scared to say it. Uh, and... Um, and when we don't say, as, as democracies, when we don't say that democracy is better, we allow the schnooks in Russia and China and other places to say that there's alternatives to democracy. There's no alternatives to democracy. Democracy is better. That being said, uh, and I don't need to quote Mr. Churchill on this, democracy is not perfect. Democracy is a big old mess. And we sometimes forget this in the United States that it's supposed to be a big old mess. It's supposed to move slowly. It's a, but it's supposed to provide for its citizens. And most of all, it is supposed to give citizens of countries uh, the sense that their voice matters, that they have a say. Uh, and that really is fundamental to, to the democratic project. Um, and so in countries, as you suggested, where there's been curtailment and there's been uh, the rise of right-wing parties and there's been this, that, and the other, um, countries that have a democratic tradition are going to veer back uh, and they're going to veer back. And it's very important for the United States and the American people to understand what their role is in this regard. The United States uh, is an incredible place. It's an incredible idea. And um, it is uh, a model for the United for the rest of the world just by its very existence. But the United States needs to succeed because nothing succeeds like success. And so when the United States veered into a dark path um, in the last few years, um, the rest of the world thought, huh, maybe we can do that too. Uh, maybe that would benefit our people as well. Um, and <clears throat> what is remarkable is that the American people uh, turned away from that dark, that dark path and they are headed now, I think, in the right trajectory. They're going in the right direction and, and it is going to succeed. The economy is picking up in the United States um, and it is standing firm in Central Europe. And whereas just months ago, uh, it's still going on, but whereas months ago people were saying it might be the end of the American project, maybe there is a future that looks Russian or looks Chinese, that's all bullshit. It's all gone. I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to say that. And, um, and, uh, and uh, people do know, even if they don't say it, that democracy is better. President Biden was elected 
uh, in part in order to try to heal the nation, bring it back together again, get back to a more bipartisan spirit. Uh, in some cases, we've seen that. Uh, in others, we still uh, hear um, uh, shrill vestiges, mm-hmm. um, right? I mean, Donald Trump still has, unfortunately, a very strong hold uh, on the party as well as his acolytes. So it's mm-hmm. not as though that fever has entirely broken. I'm not condoning anybody on the left either. But mm-hmm. you know, right now, you have to sort of deal with the challenges you, you have. What are the things that have to happen in the United States, Peter? And then what are the things that allies and partners can do for one another to counter these movements? Because right now it looks like, you know, French friends of mine tell me, I, I, you know, if, if the choice is between Mélenchon and Le Pen, I'm going to go for Le Pen, which is sort of how you ended up with Hitler, really, mm-hmm. in a sense. Right. Um, so how you know, what do we do at home? What is it that we all have to do for one another? Because these movements are getting traction, whether it's because leaders are not doing a good enough job explaining all the mechanisms that we created after World War II to prevent World War III mm-hmm. and killing 20 million, 26 million people or so. Yeah. How, how, do, how do we need to do this at home? How do we need to do this as friends, as democracies, uh, to, to steer each other away from the, the course of damnation, if you will? Um, all right. Uh, I will now quote uh, Albert Einstein again, just he's on my mind, uh, who said, uh, I don't know how World War Three is going to be fought, but I know World War Four is going to be fought with sticks and stones. <laughs> um, and um, and that is something like we, we have a responsibility, uh, whether we're governments, individuals, organizations uh, to prevent uh, massive, massive obliteration of the world, which is something that can happen. Um, we, I don't want to, I don't want to exaggerate the point, but I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that what Ukraine has done is given everybody a sense of purpose in the democracies in the, and so that everything is at stake because as people say, oh, you know, if, if, if Russia takes, uh, wins in Ukraine, Russia's going to go into the Baltics and Russia's going to take over Europe. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is it paralyzes the democracies. And as you suggest, we will begin to actually study alternatives to democracy inside our own societies. That's the danger. And that's what you were getting at, Vago. And that is something that um, that is, frankly, more scary than Russian tanks, if there are any Russian tanks left. So, so um, to counter that, I do have to say, number one is we do have to stand firm in Ukraine and help the Ukrainians who are fighting not only for their sovereignty, you know, citizens don't become soldiers to defend their sovereignty. Citizens become soldiers to defend their way of life. And that is what the Ukrainians are doing and they're defending democracy. And and that then message then has to go all through Europe into North America and beyond. Um, and the argument has to be made that we, are, we, we do know what we stand for. And Halifax International Security Forum, by the way, unlike some of the other conferences or events, um, when we talk about security, we know what it is that we're securing and it is our values. It's our way of life and it's our democracy. Um, and I do think that, um, when you say, what should the United States be doing now? The United States is doing it. Um, it is in, you know, making sure that, um, Americans have jobs, making sure that Americans see the benefit of, of supporting, uh, um, our friends and allies in Ukraine. Um, and, and, uh, you know, being a leader uh, in the world. 
Um, let me, uh, Peter, just ask you uh, one last question. Um, the uh, forum uh, has been trying to create uh, a conference in Taipei. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, the COVID pandemic has gotten in, in the way. Uh, talk to folks uh, about the conference, uh, why it's so important, and when people can expect it to happen. We announced uh, that we were going to do an event in Taipei. I think we announced it in 2021 to do it in 2022. Uh, the strategic situation has changed. Um, and so we are looking to do something, but it's no longer uh, an event that is going to shine a light on Taiwan um, uh, because a light has been shown on Taiwan, both by Speaker Pelosi uh, and others. Um, so it's going to be an event uh, that is very meaningful strategically, and we will be announcing it uh, in detail before too long. Thanks, Vago. And is it going to be in Taiwan, or is it going to be somewhere else? We'll be announcing the details very soon. <laughs> uh, elegantly and <laughs> diplomatically said, Peter. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, an honor and pleasure uh, talking to you. want to do this more often and, and uh, have your voice uh, on the program. And thanks so very much to you and your whole team uh, and, and the work uh, that they do, uh, not just all year long, but certainly culminating in uh, the, the annual conference, which is a real highlight of the year. Thanks so very much. Vago, it's a privilege to be with you and with your listeners. And I really, I really appreciate everything that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you.